David um, is going to learn many lessons in the upcoming chapters. Um, He's already a faithfully committed servant, champion for God, for Yahweh. Um, And he's experiencing great blessings of God in his life, right? According to what Moses said in Deuteronomy, follows the formula. You're faithful to Yahweh. Yahweh will bless you. The God of Israel will bless you as you stand firm for him. And David's experiencing that in his life. His stand of courage and faithfulness to God's law is obvious, even against uh, Goliath. Um, And something really interesting, as I continued, I read an article this week that uh, challenged me even a little bit more about uh, Goliath and some uh, the interpretation of the incident between David and Goliath. Um, that I thought was very helpful. And something else that just ties in with a picture of David that's very important in Scripture that I need to make sure that that we emphasize. And it really is amazing in this. Well, who is David? David was the champion for Israel. Remember how uh, the Philistine, it was Goliath was described for the Philistines as their champion. That Hebrew word meant one that would stand in the place of the armies, or you could say a substitute for an army. David was a substitute warrior for God's people. He could also say that Goliath was the agent of Satan. He was the agent of the opposer against God and his people. And isn't it interesting, where was Goliath wounded? In his head. Don't we have, even in Genesis, that understanding that one day one would come to crush the serpent's head? David, a substitute for the armies of God. He's standing in the gap there. And one day, right, the greatest of his lineage, his greatest son, so to speak, will come or would come as king and would stand as the ultimate substitute and give a mortal blow to Satan's head. There's a lot of pictures here that tie David to the coming Messiah, to Jesus himself. But there was another aspect about that king that would come. He would not only have victory through his death, but he would have to suffer. David hasn't had to do do a lot of suffering yet, but the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is David going through some very difficult things. It's not just going to be blessing after blessing, but there's going to come some hard things as well. And we're going to see that tonight, beginning in chapter 19. Thank you so much. Somebody uh, tell that cricket to be quiet right there. (laughs) Yeah, but not during my preaching. Um, Well, think, but think, though, as we talk about David's suffering now, and we've made that tie in. With Christ, think of some of the Psalms and how they point directly to the very things that Jesus would have to suffer as David was suffering. Psalm 69, 21, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. David is talking about his sufferings, and one day that very description would be fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them 
and cast lots upon my vesture. Now, these things were being experienced by David, but he had no idea in what a even more real, more experiential way that Jesus would have to experience this. David is not talking about someone actually piercing his hands and feet, but it's a descriptive symbolizing the difficulties he's going through. But one day, the son of the king, the ultimate king, would have his very hands and feet pierced. Another of Psalm 41.9, Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. David knew what it was like for people that he trusted to turn against him, and Jesus did too, didn't he? And everybody left him uh, at the moment of his betrayal. Psalm 27, 12, deliver me not over to the will of my enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and as such as breathe out cruelty. Oh, Jesus knew that too. All these tie-ins to what David is experiencing and what that one day Jesus would experience. And so this whole story of David is, is a um, picture in many things that happened to him of what Jesus would one day have to go through. And that is a deep connection that I don't want us to forget as we continue on in the story of David. Well, David's going through having a lot of great blessings. And, you know, folks, I'm just going to make this application up front before we, you could turn to Samuel, 1 Samuel 19. We'll look at verse 1 in a minute. But just as David experienced great blessings from God at this point, you know, sometimes in ministry, there are many times in ministry where the Lord brings multiple blessings, right, and stability into our midst. And we rejoice and we're very thankful for that. But at the same time, when we have those good times in our lives, in our own personal lives or in the life of our ministry, sometimes we tend to have an expectation that that's always going to continue in just that same way. In other words, a continued more permanent stability. Lord, you're, you're providing stability, you're providing all these wonderful things, and that's just going to continue on until Jesus returns. But let's remember, we're not always promised those things in this life. What does the author of Hebrews say? Remember, there remaineth a rest, a future rest for the people of God. We do have rest in our relationship with God, but the ultimate peace and stability will come one day when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. That rest won't, ex won't take place in this life. And as we're well, we well know, Satan and sin tendencies still fight against spiritual ministry stability in this life. And we struggle with that. So folks, whether it's in your own spiritual condition, in your own life, or in even our ministry here, my call to you is, as we go into these difficult times for David, don't get complacent. Don't think, oh, the Lord's blessing and everything, so it's just going to continue on till. No, be aware, be ready, don't get caught by surprise. And don't get bitter when God allows crisis and difficulties to take place in our lives at times. You know, we like things, let's be honest here, we like things formulaic and tidy, right? We don't, we don't always expect as Christians, we know not to expect the easy. We know life's not going to be easy. But we do expect events to kind of proceed according to what makes sense to us. Uh, David, um, was probably as he, David didn't have an easy time fighting all those Philistines, but he knew 
the blessings that were promised in God's law is that if he was faithful to God, God would bless him and, and defeat his enemies. And we have those expectations as well. But sometimes we go a little bit too far. Sometimes I think even in our own lives or even in our life of our ministry or people's ministries, we sometimes even make deals with God in our own personal lives and ministry. God, I'll be faithful and I'll serve you wholeheartedly. And you will always do this for me in return. And that's kind of our deal, God. And I've seen you do this in the past. And so it's going to continue on in the future, just like that. Well, it is true that God's promises always remain true. Faithful servants in a general way will experience blessing, just like David did. But folks, let's be real here. He's often unpredictable in how he works those truths out in our lives on a daily basis. God's faithful, but don't always expect him to be predictable. That's where we get into trouble at times. Everything that's happened in David's life so far, it's not been easy, but it's been spiritually predictable. Go out against Goliath. God gives victory. God gives blessing. Fight the Philistines. Victory. Blessing. You know, sooner or later, if you've been anointed king, then the king that's over you right now is probably going to get jealous. But God will work that out, too. And God will protect. And God is giving David fame and blessing and all these things. That's predictable. But at this point, as we get into this today, the rest of the book, very little makes sense from, from a human standpoint and what happens to David. The unexpected reigns in David's life, really as we continue on. Think about this. David is going to be separated from everything that's dear to him, family, friends, and even God is going to feel a little distant at times, right? That's what the Psalms say that he writes. Um, other good men will suffer in their attempts to help David. And I'm not going to give away too much on that. Enemies are going to seem more trustworthy than his own people. <coughs> Things aren't going to make a lot of sense. And so David is going to be in this unstable, unstable time in his life. And I think sometimes that, as we go through these things, it starts to make us uncomfortable. Because as we see what's going on in David's life, it kind of sometimes gives us a sneaky suspicion that God might allow unpredictable events in our lives too, today. And he's not always maybe going to let us know why he's even allowing them. And that gets difficult, right? In fact, folks, let's just be candid here. I try to be candid. God can many times blow up all our predictables in our life. Everything that you think that God should do for you, God can many times turn that around and say, well, I'm not going to do it quite that way. You may have seen me work in these ways in the past, and I'm going to be faithful to you, but I'm not always going to be predictable because we want stability and tidiness, right? What does God want? Does he always want that in our lives? Well, what he wants more is for us to grow in faith and dependence. And so sometimes he surprises us and lets things happen in our lives, personally, and in, in our ministries to make sure we're depending on him. And we need to do that. So remember, whatever happens, whatever happens in David's life and whatever happens in our lives, 
God is still in control of our story, of your story. So continue to serve him faithfully. Don't play the, ah, if only God hadn't have done that. David may be tempted to do that. If only God wouldn't have let King Saul get so out of control. If, if only he would have given me this or that. That's not the right thing to say, but rather it's, Lord, I don't understand what's going on, but what do you want me to do next? I'm not always going to have the answer to the why question, but I should always be ready to answer the what question. What do you want me to do, Lord? Even if I don't get the answers to the why question. So all of that introduction, I think, is important as we continue on here with what's going to happen with David. David 19, verse 1. And Saul spake to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Uh, Saul has enlarged his plans. First, they were personal, right? And now he's expanding them to an inner circle that he thinks he can trust. He hasn't been successful in getting rid of David yet. So let's expand this to my closest advisors and my son. And let's get rid of David quickly. But I don't think in the midst of this that Saul really has any idea how close Jonathan and David are. Um, again, he, he's, more, he's always more focused on himself. I don't think he would have even realized if he'd been really paying attention that Jonathan and David probably didn't had no idea that they had made a covenant and friendship. I don't think Saul has any idea of that. So, of course, when he comes to Jonathan and says, we're going to get David, we're going to kill him. Jonathan loves David. And it says here, it's a beautiful term. Again, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. I and mean, his friendship with David was one of the most important things in his life. And so when King Dad comes along and says, we're going to get rid of him, Jonathan says, well, wait a minute here. And I don't think so. But he's in a real quandary because he has made a covenant that he will stay faithful to David. But yet he has responsibilities towards his father. Whew. You ever felt like you're in a tight place? Jonathan's in a tight place here. What does he do? Jonathan thinks it through. And he's very wise in his solution here. He comes up with a solution that meets both responsibilities. So he goes to David, warns David, said, David, you better hide for a little while. Provides a plan for him to hide. You hide. I'll talk to my dad. Then he goes to his dad, talks with his dad, attempts to reason with his father, trying to figure out why he is angry. Folks, if someone is being unreasonable with you, you need to pray about it and pray, Lord, help me to be able to have a conversation with this person. And you give me wise words of reasonable, reasonability. That's not a word, I don't think, but of reason. Um, help me to carefully work through this problem and let's have a solution together. Don't get all angry and out of, been out of shape and, oh, I'm going to. No, pray, just like Jonathan. Give me words of wisdom here. And God gives Jonathan much wisdom. So let's, okay, I'm getting ahead of where we are in the verse. Verse two, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father seeketh to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself, for you be on your guard until the morning and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. Go hide. And I'll handle this. I'll go out and I'll stand beside my father in the field where thou art. And I will commune with, or basically I'll have a conversation with my dad, with my father of thee. 
And what I see or learn, that I will tell thee. And Jonathan spake well, or spoke, spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, now here is his very reasonable wise words. And he gives him an argument that even in what, what people call today irrational, even an irrational king acting irrationally can't argue with. He says, um, let not the king sin against his servant, against David. He's very direct. It says, dad, this, this plot to kill David is sin. Why, why, why would you want to do that? Don't do this. And let me give you three good reasons why you shouldn't do this. Because he had not sinned against thee. He's not done anything wrong. He's innocent, dad. Why would you want to kill an innocent man? That's a good, valid reason. Here's a second one. And because his works have been to thee word very good, or his deeds have brought good to you. Dad, everything that David's done has been a benefit to you. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine. And the Lord brought a great salvation for all Israel. And thou sawest it. You, you saw the whole thing and didst rejoice. You were excited about this. Why in the world then, that's my interpretation there, wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Reason number two, Dad, David's only done you good. That's all he's ever done. He's loyal, he's loyal and he's brought blessings to you and your kingdom. Why would you want to kill him? Um, and then verse six, or okay, verse five, um, for he did put his life in his hand. Okay, slew the Philistine, and thou sawest, okay, wherefore when will thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Um, number three of his reasonings here, you will be guilty of great sin in killing an innocent man. If you go forward with this, you will be the one that will be the criminal, dad. Why would you want to do that? Wise, well thought out, um, an argument that even someone that is angry and not thinking clearly can argue with. And God uses Jonathan's very wise, careful words. I hope this really um, ingrains itself into us that whenever we're talking with other people, ask the Lord to help you use wise, careful words. Let the Lord and his principles frame your arguments. And when you work with people, be willing to be totally guided by the spirit. And Jonathan does good here and God allows it to be successful. And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan. He couldn't, he couldn't argue with him, but then he went further. Saul swear as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. And this is an oath folks. This is very serious. What Saul says, he says, I'm going to take an oath before the Lord. I will not kill David. That's pretty commendable, except for the fact of what's going to happen in the very few next verses. But that is a very serious thing marked at what Saul just did. But in the meantime, Jonathan called David and Jonathan showed him or reported to him all those things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as times passed. So Jonathan goes to David and says, everything's cleared up. You can return to life as normal, David. And I think... If there's one thing, Jonathan is throughout scripture and really his short life um, is a remarkable example of um, a faithful life lived for God. But I do think if there's one weakness, maybe Jonathan tends to be a little naive at times. And we'll see this played out later. 
Jonathan thinks at this point that everything's cleared up. And I think he really believes that, hey, David, this is just one of my dad's really strange, bad moods. You know how he's been lately. And I, I don't know why these happen, but it's all blown over now. You're good. We can get back to normal. Well, here's the thing. Little does Jonathan know how close his friend David is to really, this is an exaggeration to never having a normal life again. He's going to have the exact opposite situation happen here very soon. And verse eight, in the meantime, we see God's blessing. There was war again. Boy, those Philistines just don't learn for anything. And they're out, they're fighting the Israelites and David goes out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter. I mean, he wiped them up. He took them out. He took care of them. A great victory. And they literally, they fled from him. Now mark that. They fled from David. They fled from Israel. So David comes back from fighting and now he's back. Remember, everything's back to normal. He's back playing for Saul. Except for that evil, that harmful spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in the house with his spear in his hand and David played with his hand. Isn't it interesting, too, that David has brought continued peace to the kingdom? Why is Saul so, still sitting around with a spear in his hand? David's brought peace. He's very, obviously, Saul is very troubled. Even the, with the victories that David has won, Saul's still sitting, even when he's resting with a sword spear in his hand. He's angry, he's troubled, and he's just envious and jealous of David. And again, for a third time, he lets go of that anger. Well he, didn't, well, he uses that anger, and he throws that spear, verse 10, right? And Saul, Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with that spear. But David slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin, the spear, into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. This is the third time. And David says this time, I don't think I'm going back tonight. I'm going home. I don't know what it was about this. Maybe he saw a particular look in Saul's eyes where he saw, there's, he's after me. This is different than before. And I'm not going to return. And so he goes home, which was a good idea. But isn't this interesting? You remember how we just talked about that when David pursued the Philistines, that they fled away? Now Saul is treating David like a Philistine. So David has to flee away. Saul is totally the opposite of what a spiritually minded person should be. And he's acting like David's enemy. He is David's enemy. So it's a wise move, though, that David flees because there's enemies even at the door of his home. So he gets home and he has, I'm sure, a very um, spirited conversation with his new wife, Michal. Remember, I decided to pronounce it that way. I think in the Hebrew, it, it's allowed. Um, so let's continue to, to read verse 11. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. That's one thing about Saul. He has a really good, uh, not reconnaissance, but a, a really good system to keep track of people. He knows most of what's going on in the kingdom. And that was before they had drones or cam. Or, cam or cameras at the door or any sort of thing. He knows what's going on in his kingdom. And so he knows that David has returned home. And I'm sure the conversation between Mikal 
and David was very desperate indeed. And so Michael's, David's wife is talking with him. And I kind of see it going like this way. And it's interesting. I think Michal is worldly wiser than her brother, Jonathan. David, I think, comes in, and I'm kind of thinking of it this way. He's talking to his wife. I, I don't understand. I mean, Jonathan said that everything was normal again. Everything was going to be okay. And why is Saul still trying to kill me? I mean, Macau, you should have seen that look in his eyes. I've never seen him that angry before. And she says, look, David, I don't, I don't care what my brother said. I know my father. You have to get out of here tonight or you are a dead man. I think Macau was kind of like, you know how, now we don't have daughters in our family. We have all boys, but I've been told that sometimes you have a daughter that's a little closer to her father in some respects, daddy's girl, that type of thing. Um, I think that Macau, whether that relationship was there or not, I think she was very much like Saul in a lot of ways. So she understood Saul pretty well. We're going to find later on here, some of her character traits that really kind of will concern us. I think she may have understood Saul better than Jonathan because she was more like him in a lot of ways, not irrational and angry and trying to kill people. But she's basically saying, David, I know my dad. I don't, and I know what Jonathan thinks. You know, he can be a little naive at times, but I'm telling you, if you stay here tonight, you're a dead man. And she says there in verse, the, the last part of verse 11, saying, if thou if thou save not or escape with thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. You're going to be killed. So they come up with a plan. Verse 12, Michal lets David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Kind of gives me an idea that maybe they had an apartment there, kind of like what Rahab did in the wall of, of the city or something like this. Um, where she can let David down. And this also kind of makes me think that Mikhail was a strong woman. I mean, she's hanging, however she got David out that window and down that wall, she had to be pretty strong to hold on to him as he's climbing down that window. Um, she's a pretty self-sufficient woman in her own right. Uh, David likes uh, strong women. We'll continue to see that. And she is one of those. So David gets away, he flees. And now uh, Mikhail has a plan all ready to go, her tricky plan into action. Here's what it is, okay? And Michal took an image, or the Hebrew there is a teraphim, and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for basically at its head and covered it with clothes. Now, this, this is actually a really good idea, and it's very tricky, but there is one real problematic thing here that should make us stop and wonder, wait a minute, where did Michal get a teraphim? A teraphim is an idol. So somewhere she found some idols and used them to trick the soldiers. But what does that mean for her? Now, we don't have any indication at all that David was ever involved in idol worship. But it does seem through this, it's very strong possibility that Macau was involved in idol worship. And it just helps us, kind of gives us a kind of a view about her character. She is faithful to David, but she's not faithful to God in the same way that he is. Maybe in some ways she's more like her father than what we realized before. But she takes these idols and she puts them in David's bed in his cot. And then she gets something that looks like hair and she covers it up. So it looks like somebody's sleeping in his bed, right? And then 
when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, oh, sorry, guys, he's, he's not feeling well. And maybe she goes to take them in. They, she must have shown him and see, there's his, there's his hair. There's his red hair sticking out of the blanket. And just don't, and, and so the soldier's like, oh, yeah, we don't want to we don't want to beat uh, pick on a man while he's sick. And so they go back to Saul and they say, Saul, he's sick. I mean, we can't we can't kill a sick man. And what does Saul basically say? You want to bet? <laughs> In fact, you pick up his bed and you bring him to me. And I'll be glad to kill him in his bed. It'll be a whole lot easier that way. I mean, Saul is consumed with anger, isn't he, at this point? Well, let's see what the what Scripture says. That was my interpretation. Um, Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the messengers were come in, behold... There was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for its or at its head. And so the ruse is found out. They go to the bed and I don't know what they said to Mikal. Sorry, Mikal, but your dad says we have to kill your husband anyway and push past her. And they get to the bed and they pull up the covers and it's an idol, probably a pretty ugly idol with her fur or hair or something. And so that immediately gets back to the king. And as you can imagine, Saul is probably not going to be very happy with this. And he comes into Michal himself. Why hast thou deceived me so and sent away mine enemy? And here he goes. This is the first time I believe he's used this. He makes it clear. David is his enemy. David never sought this. David is loyal to this man till the end of, his, till the end of this man's life. David didn't want things to go this way. David was happy to loyally serve the king. He wasn't trying to usurp King Saul in any way. And already King Saul refers to David as his enemy. David didn't want this, but Saul is pushing this. Now, Michal has an interesting uh, answer here. Daddy's not happy. Her ruse has been discovered, but she's crafty and she has a lie ready. Interesting lie. It basically goes something like this. Well, Daddy, you know what a bully he is. I mean, what do you expect me to do? Kind of listen to what she says here. She answered Saul, he said unto me, let me go. Why should I kill thee? He threatened to kill me, dad. What am I going to do? Now, as a side note, out of all the things that she could have said, I don't think that was the wisest answer to give to one who's willing to take any excuse at all to kill the person you are attempting to protect. He's a bully, dad. It just kind of gives us the idea that Nikau isn't as spiritually astute as some of the other characters in, these, in this drama and in this narrative. But she, it, it works. Uh, Saul doesn't pursue David any further. It, gives, it buys David time, which is what he needs. And so David flees, verse 18, and escaped and came. And where is David going to go when he's at his um, worst point? Well, he's going to go to his most reliable, humanly spiritual source, and that's Samuel. He went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naoth. So Samuel goes, they go somewhere else besides where Samuel normally lives. And they're hiding out, so to speak. And watch what happens with the rest of this story as we finish up here. Um, God used the king's own son and the king's own daughter to deliver him from the king himself. And now God, it seems like with Samuel, God just says to Samuel, Samuel, you've been a faithful servant, and I know you're tired, you're getting older, I'm just going to handle this one myself. 
So Sam, you, you just do what you know to do on what you normally do. And I'm going to step in and take care of David directly this time and see if you, you, you get this from the text here. And it was told Saul saying, behold, David is at Naoth in, Ra- in Ramah. Again, he had a very good spy network. He knows, bam, where David is almost immediately. And Saul sent messengers to take David because they want to arrest him and they want him killed. So again, he's expanded the circle. Now he's got his own warriors and his servants out to get David. But what happens? God directly intervenes here. All Samuel basically does is he begins a praise service. Samuel does with himself and some of the other prophets, and they start this praise service. And it's a praise service that no one, not even the king, is going to be allowed to interrupt. So these messengers come, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying some sort of praise to God and Samuel standing as appointed as the head over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messenger of Saul, and they also prophesied. So these men come to take David, and Samuel's here with these other men, and they're praising the Lord, these prophets, and the Spirit just kind of takes over and says, nice to see you, men. You're going to praise me now, too. Let's continue. Let's just continue to praise the Lord together. Totally incapacitates these men. All right. Steps right directly into um, to um, rescue David here. And so it eventually gets back to Saul. And so he sends more messengers and the same thing happens. They get out there. They're ready to take David. They join in in the worship and the praise. And Saul sent messengers a third time and they prophesied also. So it seems at this point that Saul does one of those things where, you know, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. I'm going to go out there myself. And so he also, verse 22, went to Ramah and came to a great well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they be at Naoth and Ramah. Again, it's like Saul always has to look to find the man of God. He never knows where he is. <laughs> well, don't you know, Saul? Everybody knows he's in Naoth and Ramah. And he went thither to Naoth and Ramah, a very angry king intent upon killing David. But Samuel has begun a praise service. And God's not even going to let an irrational, angry king interrupt praise to him. And so what happens? The spirit of God in a strange way that's hard to understand because we know that that, that strange, um, troubling spirit had been upon Saul. But this is a reminder, even at this time, that when God wants even an irrational, angry king or person that has rejected him to do something, God will have that person do it, whether they want to or not. And it just shows the sovereign hand of God that he's totally in control. People watching from the outside might have thought, oh, no, you know, Saul's getting closer. There's Samuel. He's an older man, and he's going to find David. And God says, nope. He's just going to praise me like everybody else is. And that's what he does. And the spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And then God just says, now you're going to be embarrassed in front of everybody. And he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel. He reaches Samuel and he's in this embarrassing condition. Now I have to make this clear here just because it says that he was in this way and it says he laid down naked all that day and all that night. That doesn't mean that word doesn't mean um, fully. So 
he probably was wearing some sort of garment, but this still was a very embarrassing situation for the king of Israel to be found in. And it's almost, and God just says, you're going to reach Samuel and I'm going to embarrass you, Saul, and I'm going to magnify myself. And that's exactly what happens. And so everybody that looked at Saul that in this incident, instead of saying, wow, Saul's angry, David better look out. What do they end up saying? Wherefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Wow, look at Saul, praise God. He must love God. He doesn't love God at all. He's totally rejected God. But God has said, in order to protect David, you're going to praise me, Saul. And Saul's praising right along with everybody else. Folks, no matter what we face and the things that I described at the beginning of our talk tonight, no matter what God allows, even the surprising things, remember that God is still in full power, no matter the surprising things that he allows into our lives. One writer, Jason Hood, put it this way, kind of encapsulates this whole connection between David and Jesus. Like David and his son, he's talking about Jesus. He too must care. We, we too must carry our cross, deny ourselves, and resist the schemes of the devil. But the good news is, is that the decisive contest has already been waged at Calvary. The wrath that we feel from Satan is the fury of a defeated foe. Unlike Goliath, Satan may be still be prowling around, but like Goliath, his head has already been crushed. And folks, we may, the Lord may allow unpredictable events into our lives, or maybe even in the lives of our church, we don't know, in the lives of our ministry. But that doesn't mean that God isn't in full control and power of every situation. Satan's head's already been crushed. We know what's going to happen in the end. So here's the thing. Regardless of what happens to us, regardless of what happens to the different things in ministry, trust God that he's in control and just say, Lord, what next? That's what David's going to have to do. He's going to find himself in a lot of unexpected situations, and David's going to have to say, okay, God, what next? Because <laughs> I don't know what to do. God says, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to guide you, even in the wilderness, even fleeing for your very life. So you remember that, and even as we go to prayer tonight, and we have things that are truly burdensome to us, let's pray and remember God's in control.